Morning everyone, great to be with you. Thank you for join, uh, tuning into Faith Life again this morning. I want to uh, consider uh, just six verses together from 2 Corinthians 5. Um, we're going to consider them under this, our identity uh, in Christ. Who are we? Uh, where have we come from? What just has Christ uh, done for us? You see, identity is something that the world fights for. It's something that the world fights uh, to uphold. Uh, we all are interested in our family backgrounds, where we came from, what makes us the people that we are today. And yet Paul makes it very plain uh, in these verses to the Corinthian church, just what we are in Christ, what Christ has done for us, and who we are, and what our identity is uh, in him. So let's read the six verses together from uh, 2 Corinthians 5. We're going to read verses 14 uh, down through to 20. Uh, as ever, I encourage you to use your own Bibles, but the verses uh, will be up on will be up on screen. So we're going to read uh, from 2 Corinthians 5 verse 14 down to verse 20 and it reads uh, like this. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this that one has died for all therefore all have died and he died for all that those who might live no longer live for themselves but for him who was for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, as anyone who is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting the trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore we are Christ's ambassadors, God making his appeal through us. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So what I'm going to do in the, the time that we are going to look at these verses together is unwrap what Paul is talking about when he talks about this word identity. How we and who we are in Christ. And not just uh, unpick that for uh, the sake of understanding the passage but also for the sake of application how does this uh, affect us how are we to live as people with an identity uh, in Christ Jesus you see Paul's letters to the Corinthian churches is that of, of something of just laying out exactly who we are in Christ and that I want to do for us this morning to to leave us in no doubt that in with Christ we have changed completely to leave us with a clear picture uh, in our mind of where we stand in the world and our identity. We break uh, into the chapter at uh, verse 14 and Paul talks about the love of Christ. He talks about the love of Christ being compelling or, or, or he talks about the love of Christ controlling as we read together. And yet some verses as I mentioned or versions use the word compel. If you control or you compel something or somebody to do something, you exert a pressure on them. You uh, want them to, and desire them to do things in a certain way. You see, love's, uh, Christ's love was compelling. It compelled Christ to go to the cross. It was a very compelling thing. It was the love of, of Christ and the love of God for us, a fallen world, that compelled Jesus to go to the cross. It was Paul's love for Christ that compelled him to go on a missionary journey uh, around the world telling as many people who will listen 
the message of Christ. It was the love of Christ that compelled Paul to go off and to face danger of, of countries, of, of people, of being in chains, of being in prison, of facing embarrassment, of facing accusation, but all because he wanted to go and share the love of Christ with people. It was an incredibly compelling thing. So I guess as we look at this, and we look at this idea that the love of Christ compels us, my question is this, what will the love of Christ compel us to do? What will it compel you to do? What will it compel me to do? That's a, a question we need to answer as we get right at the start of our chapter this morning. You see, what can the love of Christ compel us to do? What we can do with the love of Christ is show others just how much Jesus loves them. We can demonstrate to other people the love of Christ by treating them in a way that they are never treated, by treating them in a way that, that shows that there is a God who loves them and a God who cares for them and a God who is holy and a God who is righteous and a God who is judge and, and a God who wants to do something about their sin. That's what the love of Christ can compel us to do. It will help people to discover the love of Christ for themselves. Verse 14 goes into verse 15 and it carries on Paul's thoughts of this statement. Because we are convinced that one died for all, therefore all have died. You see, everyone who has died, everyone who died in Christ has received the benefits of Christ's substitutionary death. What does that mean? Well, it means this, that if we give up our old self, if we die to our old self and we say, Lord, I want to have a relationship with you. Lord, I want to be in the benefit of everything that you've done. Lord, I am sorry for my sin. Lord, I come before you and ask for your forgiveness. That's putting the old self away. That's putting the old life away. That's dying to our old life. And then we live in the benefit of Christ's substitutionary death. Because Christ died for our old lives. Christ died to take away the things that caused the break in the relationship between us and God. You see, we also benefit from something that isn't a short-term fix. It isn't a patch. It isn't a plaster over a cut. It's not a little bit of plaster in a broken wall. It's not just a short-term solution. You see, Christ's death on the cross, his substitutionary death, is so much more than that. It's for the long term. It's for eternity. Christ's substitutionary death on the cross means that we can spend eternity with him if we put our faith and our trust in Christ. How do we identify as people who are Christians? How do we identify in Christ? Because we have the love of Christ that compels us to do what God wants us to do. You see, Paul was a man who tormented and, and did his best to disrupt the church in any way possible. He persecuted people who were of followers of what he called the way. He was determined to rid them of this uh, problem. He was determined to rid the Jewish 
community of these people who preached Christ crucified. And yet Paul himself would have that miraculous interaction with Jesus that would change his thinking completely. You see, God graciously dealt with him and made him one of the most influential people in biblical history. God graciously intervened and it took Paul being blinded to what had gone before and to have his eyes opened as to what God wanted him to do. You see, Paul makes it plain that he knows that he is an object of love and that object of love is the love of Christ because Christ died once and Christ died for all. You see, when it comes to the love of Christ, the love of Christ is beyond measure. It is beyond understanding. And we, as I said, are beneficiaries of the same love that Paul was convinced of. God's word says nothing shall separate us from the love of Christ. You see, it's for all of us who love, who have trusted God in our lives, and that we live in the light and the knowledge of the love of God. So why then are we new creations? Why do we have a new identity? Simply, we have the love of Christ compelling and motivating us to live the life that we live. Paul continues with verse 16. Paul's opinion of Christ has changed. Not just in the, the terms of persecution, but also now in the, how his Christian understanding of Christ and who he was and who he is. Paul has had a radical change of thinking. I want to introduce you to a man called Nicholas Copernicus. Some of you might have heard of him. I would suggest that the majority of you haven't. But some of you would have seen, and all of us would have seen, the results of his work. Appearing on screen now is a picture of our galaxy. Now, it's obviously quite a convenient picture to have all the planets lined up just as they are. But Copernicus was the uh, one of the first astronomic thinkers to believe that the sun was the centre of our universe. He was the first person, one of the first people to realise that the earth wasn't the centre of our universe and the sun was. And that because of that, we our planets now line up something like the picture on screen. And it all started with this man, Copernicus. Copernican revolution is a, is a description of any kind of radical thinking. You see, Paul has had his Copernican moment. His thinking has dramatically changed, and is obvious to anyone who can read. The last sentence in verse 16 is not difficult to read. Paul speaks very plainly. He says clearly to the church in Corinth, and to us here that live in thousands of years later, he has lived as an egocentrical and an egotistical maniac who was, yes, outwardly religious, but had no real understanding of the true nature of God. And yet Paul's thinking has changed. He is now focused on Christ and not himself. He has decreased and God has increased. You see, our thinking should be the same as Paul's. Our thinking should not be about ourselves and our own selfish desires, but rather about God. And his perfect plan on our lives and what part of that plan we make up you see if we focus on God we will make such an impact to the people around about us that there is obviously questions that will lead from that of just what has caused this change they will be left with no choice to but to acknowledge that there is something different within us so what makes us a new creation well so far we've had the love of Christ that compels us to do things for him. Our thinking has changed. And Paul goes on, and so shall I.
You see, verse 17, Paul continues his argument as to why we have changed as Christians and why he has changed as a person and why we need to be new people. He uses the word therefore, which is scriptural for saying, because of everything that I have said, I'm now going to say. And he now goes on to say, if anyone's in Christ, he is a new creation. Because of everything that has gone before, we are now new creations. Because of everything that's happened, we are now new creations for those of us who believe in Jesus. The old has gone and the new has come. You see, believers in Christ have been through some major changes in life. Think of the people that you go to church with. Think of the people that you know with your friends and family that are trusted as in Christ as their Lord and Saviour. Think of what about their stories that you know. How it's changed them. How it's shaped them into the people that God wants them to be. How their lives have been turned upside down by Jesus. You see, we've all got a history with God. We've all had a history before we met God and that history is the bit that we're not proud of. Yet I would suggest... Every single one of us that has a history with God has had our history, our future rather, with God changed because of what Christ achieved on the cross. God has wiped our slate clean and he chooses to remember our sin no more. You see, we have new life, new hope and new eternity. And yet with all this good, I wonder how many of us, if we were honest with ourselves, have asked this question. If I'm a new creation... Why do I feel like my old self? I know I've struggled with that. And I would suggest that many of you watching this this morning have struggled with that. If I'm a new creation, why do I feel like my old self? You see, I find great comfort in the knowledge that Christ says through Paul, very clearly, I am a new creation. It is a promise from God. This is not my word, it is God's word. And while my words count for very little... What God says will happen. For me to illustrate it in this way, I want to talk about coal and charcoal. I know it's an exciting subject for a Sunday morning, but, but bear with me. You see, charcoal and coal look pretty much the same. They pretty much do the same thing. They have the same elementary makeup. They both do pretty much the same job of keeping us warm in winter, for those of us that might have such a fire. You see, like... Uh, humans, we're, we're all the same, mostly. We're all recognisable as humans. We, we all have a language, the ability to reason and think. We all have the ability to love and to feel emotion and to, uh, to have cognitive thought. And yet our chemical makeup is the same. What is different, though, is on the inside. It's our fundamental nature. You see, charcoal will never become a diamond. Yet coal will. It's what marks it out as different. You see, we have the potential to become diamonds, precious stones, and not just precious stones, but living stones, as Peter talks about it, to be built up as spiritual houses, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices to God through Christ Jesus. You see, however, just because we have the potential to become diamonds, we need to let God show us how to get there. You see, diamonds have to be cut and polished to bring out their true worth and their true value. And that's the same for us. We have to be moulded and shaped and cut and polished and, and refined 
to people to be the people that God wants us to be. Let's not take anything away from the fact that that all starts because of what Christ has done for us. We are new creations. Paul has replaced ignorance and error with a true understanding and his identity and achievement. You see, the, the language in this verse speaks of a, a new process, a process that is ongoing. If it's ongoing, then one day we will, it will end and everything we know will pass away. And we will see the city that Jesus has gone to prepare for us. So why then are we new creations? Well, we have the love of Christ within us that compels us. Our thinking has changed. And now we see that the old life has gone and the new has come. You see, Paul still builds his arguments is in verse 18. And now he leaves the Corinthian church with no doubt as to who the orchestrator of all these major changes are. He states this very plainly, that all this is from God who reconciled us to himself. You see, Paul switches on to the subjects of reconciliation. We needed to overcome this separation from God and that came through Christ's reconciling work on the cross. Jesus provided the way for us to be reconciled to God. You see, the situation was, was sin was such that God had, had turned his back on us. And yet because of Christ and his reconciling work on the cross, God can now turn his face towards us if we accept who Jesus is. You see, this is so much more than just a set of scales with sin on one side and Jesus' death on the cross outweighing them on the other. God, who is holy and righteous and judge, can have sinners in his presence because of what Jesus has done for us. God was the aggrieved party and yet acted in a way that brought reconciliation and restoration. Why are we new creations? We have the love of God within us. Our thinking has changed. We have an old life gone and a new life come and now we are reconciled to God. As we come to the last two verses, verses 19 and 20, we see from Paul that all this information about what God has done for us, where we stand before him. And these last two verses together, we're going to look at, at just how this information leads up to a potential change. And not just a potential change, but a potential challenge. You see, we are charged with the task of telling other people. This isn't to be the world's best kept secret. We are tasked with sharing the message of reconciliation. The message that Paul says God has entrusted to us. Simply put, we are to share the gospel. You see, God has reconciled us to himself. The relationship is restored and now we see this, the challenge of sharing. It's the only message that has changed the lives of ordinary people like you and me. It's the message that has turned ordinary people into the extraordinary people, to do extraordinary things. It's caused people to change their outlook and their worldview for millions of people throughout history. It changes and transforms lives. It restores families. It restores marriages. It breaks up the tragedy of the human condition. And it's entrusted to us to be told by us to the people we meet. You see, it's been entrusted to people like us who have been experienced the first hand of the power of God and the transformation of our lives. See, it allows people to be living stones, like Peter said in his word that we looked at earlier on. We have a message that is true, solid, infallible, 
And yet you don't have to be a great evangelist or a great public spokesperson with a slick presentation skill and a silver tongue. It's as easily shared over a cup of tea with a friend as it is in a stadium to several thousand people. We have a message that can change people's lives. A message from God that has the power to change the lives of people who hear it. But not just this life and the life to come as well. It is the only way that we get off this earth alive. We are challenged with sharing a message. And friends, we need to be a people who meet that challenge head on. So why then are we new creations? We have the love of Christ within us. Our thinking has changed. The old has gone and a new has come. We are reconciled to God and we are a people with a message to share. Yet Paul leaves us as we come to a close with our biggest challenge yet. If you thought the challenge of sharing the gospel was hard, this last bit should really make you sit up and take notice. Paul calls us ambassadors of God. God's representative on earth, with the right language and the right behaviour to avoid a diplomatic incident. It was a challenge aimed front and centre at the Corinthian church, and yet it's a challenge that lands squarely in our laps. You see, an ambassador must be spirit filled 1 corinthians 3 16 says do you not know that you are god's temple and that god's spirit dwells in you you see the ambassador must not be ashamed romans 1 verse 16 says for i am not ashamed of the gospel of christ an ambassador must be professional uh, philippians 4 verse 8 finally brothers whatever is true whatever is honorable whatever is just whatever is pure whatever is lovely whatever is comfortable if there is anything excellence, if there is anything we think of worthy of praise, think of these things. You see, the ambassador must be dedicated. Colossians says this, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and thankfulness in your hearts to God. You see, that's a huge task that God asks of us. It's a huge task to be an ambassador for God. Yet we have a God who is more than up to helping us with the task. And he has chosen us to be messengers, his children, and ultimately a bride for his son in the church. So this morning I set out to give you a picture of what or who we are in Christ. What our identity is. We are a people who have been loved. We are a people whose thinking has changed. We are a people who Christ has called us to be his own. We are his ambassadors. And as we go out into this week, may the Lord bless us and help us to be a people who go out and share the message for him. To show the world that we have a new identity. That we identify as Christians. We identify as a child of God. We identify as Christ's. Amen. Now the Lord bless you. Thank you for allowing me to share with you this morning. I trust uh, his word has been a challenge to us uh, and may the Lord encourage us as we go out into the week uh, for him.